almost missed my cue to come up. <laughs> I know I've probably gone astray when someone pulls out a flare gun. <laughs> Our passage this morning is uh, found in Isaiah, the ninth chapter, verses six through seven. And as you're turning to it, I wanted to share with you something today. I uh, I got to do something called Wreaths Across America yesterday. How many of y'all got to do that too? Anybody? Uh, the thing that I liked about that company, uh, Wooster Wreath Company, is that one year uh, they had a bunch of paid-for wreaths, and uh, there was a lot of cancellations. They didn't want them delivered, but they were already paid for. And so he offered them to Arlington National Cemetery. And uh, they, they graciously took them and they rounded up some volunteers and they placed all those wreaths on those graves of all those brave men and women that lost their lives in service to our country. And it was so beautiful that it spread. And so in Canyon City, uh, I got to take my 20 wreaths and go to our Greenwood Cemetery and uh, uh, put the wreaths on those graves. And I have to admit something to you, I'm mighty tuckered out. That cemetery is a lot bigger than I thought it was. But at the end, I was very happy for what I had done, and uh, it's nice for veterans uh, to go and do that. It's also nice for uh, folks that want to honor veterans to do that. If you get a chance to do it, I, I, I want to ask you to volunteer. I think you'll be delighted that you did. Uh, Isaiah, the ninth chapter, verses 6 through 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom and to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word today. Uh, let's have a short prayer, shall we? Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, I am a weak instrument of your love. And Lord, I just ask that you would give me power and strength. Guide me with your Holy Spirit as we pass on this sermon today. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Christmas is the season where we celebrate the birth of Christ. Some people are going, duh. The question I want to ask this morning is how do we know that Jesus is truly the authentic Christ we celebrate at Christmas? And I hear some people going, oh, you shouldn't ask a question like that. You shouldn't ask it. It may seem like a strange question for us to ask this morning, but do we know for sure that Jesus is truly the Christ or Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament scripture? To us, that question may be strange. But to the Jewish people of the first century, they had to know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was truly the Christ before they would accept and worship him. In fact, even to this day, Jewish people can look at Jesus and accept him on at least some level as a great one from God. But they fail to recognize that he is in fact the promised Messiah of God. For me, when I was on active duty and we had to enter a tactical operations center, 
or a secure information facility or a military base, we had to provide our ID cards to security personnel who would identify who we were and our reason to enter that facility. So you couldn't just be a member of the military. You had to have a reason to be there. Sometimes the ID card was not enough. And our pictures with security questions would be used. In other words, I'd walk in, I'd show my ID card. Hello, Major Williamson. What town were you born in? Jackson, Mississippi. Oh, that's right. And what was your high school? Wingfield High School. Oh, that's right. Major, you can go on in. Some Bible scholars give Jesus the ultimate ID card because they say that there's over 300 Old Testament prophecies that God left us that prove who Jesus is, who he said he was, and the New Testament. And also, the circumstances such as his birthplace, his lineage, his method of execution were beyond Christ's control and could not have been accidentally or deliberately fulfilled. As a pastor, I get to read a lot of books. And one of them was a book called Science Speaks. I recommend it highly, by the way. Peter Stoner and Robert Newman discussed the statistical improbability of one man, whether accidentally or deliberately, fulfilling not all 300, just eight of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. I learned a new word for this sermon. The chance of this happening, they say, is one in quintillion or 10 with 17 zeros behind it. Stoner presents a scenario that illustrates the magnitude of such odds. Suppose that we take 10 quintillion silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. Everybody knows Texas is huge. They would cover all of the state two feet deep. Now mark just one of those silver dollars and stir the whole mass up thoroughly throughout all the state. Blindfold a man. And tell him he can travel as far as he wishes, but he can only pick up one silver dollar and say that is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Now, I've piqued your imagination. And you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that none of us could do it. It would be impossible. The same chance occurs with the prophets writing just these eight prophecies and having them all come true in one man from their day to the present day providing they wrote using their own wisdom it would have been impossible the mathematical probability of 300 or 47 or even just eight fulfilled prophecies of Jesus stand as evidence to his messiahship I'm going to give you 47 prophecies I'm going to do it with a deep breath so pay attention all right. The first one is that the Messiah would wound the serpent. That was found in the book of Genesis and it was fulfilled in Matthew. Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. That was given in Micah and it was, it was fulfilled in Matthew. Messiah would be born of a virgin. That was given in Isaiah 7 and it was fulfilled in Matthew. Messiah would come from the line of Abraham. Genesis 12, fulfilled in Matthew 1. Messiah would be a, a descendant of Isaac. 
Also in Genesis 17, fulfilled in Luke the third chapter, Messiah would be a descendant of Jacob. That was in Numbers 24, fulfilled in Matthew 1-2. Jesus would come from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, fulfilled in Luke the third chapter. Messiah would be heir to King David's throne, 2 Samuel the seventh chapter. Luke, the first chapter, verse 32. Messiah's throne would be anointed and eternal. Psalms 45, fulfilled in Luke, the first chapter. Messiah would be called Emmanuel. Isaiah, the seventh chapter, fulfilled in Matthew 1. Messiah would spend a season in Egypt. Hosea, the eleventh chapter. Matthew, fulfilled in Matthew, the second chapter. A massacre of children would happen at Messiah's birthplace. Jeremiah, the 31st chapter, fulfilled in Matthew, the 2nd chapter. A messenger would prepare the way for Messiah. Isaiah, the 40th, uh, 40th chapter, fulfilled in Luke, the 3rd chapter. Messiah would be preceded by a forerunner. Malachi, the 3rd chapter, fulfilled in Matthew, the 11th chapter. Messiah would be rejected by his own people. Psalms, the 69th chapter, fulfilled in John, the 1st chapter. Messiah would be a prophet. Deuteronomy 18th chapter, fulfilled in Acts the third chapter. Messiah would be preceded by Elijah, Malachi, fourth chapter, fulfilled in Matthew 11. Messiah would be called the Son of God, Psalms the second chapter, fulfilled in Matthew the third chapter. Messiah would be called a Nazarene, Isaiah the 11th chapter, Matthew the second chapter. Messiah would bring light to Galilee, Isaiah the ninth chapter, fulfilled in Matthew the fourth chapter. Messiah would speak in parables, Psalms the 78th chapter, fulfilled in Matthew the 13th chapter. Messiah would be sent to heal the brokenhearted, Isaiah the 61st chapter, fulfilled in Luke 4. Messiah would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, Psalms the 110th fulfilled in Hebrew, the fifth chapter. Messiah would be called king, Psalms, the second chapter, fulfilled in Matthew, the 27th chapter. Messiah would enter Jerusalem on a donkey, Zechariah, 11th chapter, Matthew, the 21st chapter. Messiah would be praised by little children, Psalms, the eighth chapter, fulfilled in Matthew, the 21st chapter. Messiah would be betrayed, Psalms, the 41st chapter, fulfilled in Luke, the 22nd chapter. Messiah's price of money would be used to buy a potter's field. Zechariah the 11th chapter, fulfilled in Matthew the 27th chapter. Messiah would be falsely accused. Psalms the 35th chapter, fulfilled in Mark the 14th chapter. Messiah would be silent before his accusers. Isaiah the 53rd chapter, fulfilled in Mark the 15th chapter. Messiah would be spat upon and struck. Isaiah the 50th chapter, fulfilled in Matthew the 26th chapter. Messiah would be hated without cause. Psalms, the 35th chapter. John, the 15th chapter would be the fulfillment. Messiah would be crucified with criminals. Isaiah, the 53rd chapter. Matthew, the 27th chapter. Messiah would be given vinegar to drink. Psalms, the 69th chapter. Fulfilled in Matthew, the 27th chapter. Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced. Psalms, the 22nd chapter, fulfilled in John, the 20th chapter. Messiah would be mocked and ridiculed. Psalm, the 22nd chapter, fulfilled in Luke, the 23rd chapter. Soldiers would gamble for the Messiah's garments. Psalms, the 22nd chapter, fulfilled in Luke, the 23rd chapter. Messiah's bones would not be broken. 
Exodus, the 12th chapter, fulfilled in John, the 19th chapter. Messiah would be forsaken by God. Psalms, the 22nd chapter, fulfilled Matthew, the 27th chapter. Messiah would pray for his enemies. Psalms, the 109th chapter, fulfilled in Luke, the 23rd chapter. Soldiers would pierce Messiah's side. Zechariah, the 12th chapter, John, the 19th was the fulfillment. Messiah would be buried with the rich, Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, fulfilled in Matthew, the 27th chapter. Messiah would resurrect from the dead, Psalms, the 16th chapter, fulfilled in Matthew, the 28th chapter. Messiah would ascend to heaven, Psalms, the 24th chapter, fulfilled Mark, the 16th chapter. Messiah would be seated at God's right hand, Psalms, the 68th chapter, fulfilled in Mark, the 16th chapter. Messiah would be a sacrifice for sin. Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, Romans, the 5th chapter. Messiah would return a second time. Daniel, the 7th chapter, fulfilled in Revelation 19. Try that sometime. Pass upon, pass upon, passage tells us in the Old Testament what Christ was going to do in the New Testament. It is impossible unless God is involved that these passages would come true. Totally impossible. These and many other Old Testament verses about Israel's Messiah were filled in the New Testament life of Christ. Collectively, they formed the leading proof of Christ's deity. As Jesus went about his ministry, he knew that he was fulfilling these prophecies and therefore used this knowledge to confirm his claims of being the Son of God in the flesh. How many of you remember the road to Emmaus passage after the crucifixion, after Christ had risen from the dead? Cleophas and his friend were walking back to Emmaus, seven miles away. And Jesus came on to them and walked with them. And he said, after they talked to him about Messiah, he said, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writing of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And that was found in Luke 24. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures, they point to me. That was found in John the 5th chapter, verse 39. For me, the greatest proof is found in 1 Corinthians the 15th chapter. When Paul says, now brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel that I proclaim to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. You are also saved by it. If you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believe for no purpose. For I passed on to you the most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one abnormally born, he appeared to me. Dr. James Allen Francis wrote in his One Solitary Life in 1926 what he thought about Jesus. He said this, Let us turn now to the story. A child is born in an obscure village. He is brought up in another obscure village. He works in a carpenter shop until he's 30. And then for three brief years, 
He is an itinerant preacher, proclaiming a message and living a life. He never writes a book. He never holds an office. He never raises an army. He never has a family of his own. He never owns a home. He never goes to college. He never travels 200 miles from the place where he was born. He gathers a little group of friends around them and teaches them his way of life. While still a young man, the tide of popular feeling turns against him. One denies him. Another betrays him. He is turned over to his enemies. He goes through the mockery of a trial. He is nailed to a cross between two thieves. And when died, he's laid in a borrowed grave by the kindness of a friend. Those are the facts of his human life. He rises from the dead. Today we look back across 2,000 centuries and at, or 2,000 years and ask, what kind of trail has he left across the centuries? When we try to sum up his influence, all the armies that ever marched, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned are absolutely picayune. That means really, really small. Picayune in their influence on mankind compared with this one solitary life. And you might say, well, what does that mean to us? I was in the military for 23 years. I've driven around this great country from Virginia to California and from Mississippi to Illinois. And all the cities I've driven through, I've never say, failed to see something they all have in common. Do you know what it is? You're sitting in it. You're sitting in it. I've never failed to see Christian churches dedicated to the worship of God. It is estimated that any given Sunday, 20% of our citizens attend worship services every week. <clears throat> that is 66 million worshipers, if you care to do the math. Believe it or not, that is four times more than people who will watch football games on the television in any given week. <clears throat> and in any given week, there's only 70,000 people in auditoriums and coliseums watching a football game. 66 million of us. How has Christianity changed our world? <clears throat> often we forget. Often we don't know. We know how it changed us. But Alvin Schmidt writes in his book on how has Christianity changed the world. He says one of the most significant ways that Christianity has changed the world is through its emphasis <coughs> on love and compassion. The teachings of Jesus Christ have inspired countless acts of kindness and charity throughout history, from Mother Teresa's work with the poor to Martin Luther King Jr.'s fight for civil rights. Another way that Christianity has influenced society is through its role in developing modern science and technology. Most early scientists were devout Christians who saw their work as a way to better understand God's creation. Today, many Christians continue to be at the forefront of scientific research and innovation. One of the things I like about our Christian scientists is they're looking at the way the cells of various organisms are set up. And they're looking at the fact that there's a lot of continuity between them. That means there's a lot of sameness to it. And they're starting to come up with the idea that this wasn't evolution. This was creation. There was a creator involved here because his fingerprint is all over creation. 
Christianity has also played a critical role in shaping art, literature, music, and architecture throughout history. By the way, I don't know how greatly affected you were by the music today, but I sure was. Thank you so much for your leadership in, in leading our music, Zach. It's awesome. Appreciate the young lady's contribution this morning as well. Uh, little things like that mean the world, and God bless you for doing it. From Gothic cathedrals to Renaissance masterpieces like Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel ceiling or Da Vinci's Last Supper painting, Christian themes have been the central inspiration for many artists over time. Another way that Christianity has shaped culture is through its emphasis on morality. Christian teachings have encouraged artists to create works that reflect ethical values such as love, forgiveness, humility, justice, compassion, among others. Christianity also played a vital role in preserving ancient knowledge during times when much information was lost or destroyed due to wars or other calamities around many parts of Europe during medieval times. I don't know if you knew this, but a lot of times when a king would capture another kingdom, they'd wipe the history clean, knock it all out so that it was just our history from now on. Does that seem familiar to you? Are you hearing about some of that in today's society? I don't want to be too controversial, I don't want to be too preachy about it, but it aggravates me to no end when I hear about monuments being taken down. It irritates me to no end when people who helped form this country are being demonized because of things that were accepted in the past and now we're, we're using a word called presentism, which is you judge the past by what your morality is today. I don't like it. It aggravates me. Anytime I can take a stand against it, I'll do it. That's my two cents. Freely given. Music is another area where Christianity has made a significant impact on culture. Hymns are an essential part of Christian worship. They range from traditional hymns sung by choirs using musical instruments like organ pipes or harmoniums accompanied by piano keyboard players, while contemporary songs composed by various musicians worldwide are being used actively today within different denominations globally. I love it when I turn on the radio and I hear a song that's playing in secular music and it's a Christian song. It's become so popular that it inserts itself into the secular world. I love it. But lastly, and most important, Christianity taught us how to have faith in God. To accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior and forgiveness of our sins. To forgive others as we have been forgiven and to live in peace with our fellow men and women. I was reading a story. I read a lot of things for sermons. And I was reading a story called Christmas on the Rappahannock. It was written by a pastor in the 1880s talking about an experience he had in 1862. He was part of a Union Army and he was on the banks of the Rappahannock. That's about 20 miles south of Fredericksburg, Virginia. And on the other side were Confederates. And the water was up high and deep and they could have freely shot at each other. But after a while, it became kind of a silly thing to do because who wants to have a war over a river where you can't cross it? It makes no sense. So they were, they were marching back and forth, and the author was his feet were just wet in the snow, marching back and forth, making sure that no Confederates crossed over on his side. There was a Confederate on the other side, making sure that no Union did it. And so they're walking back and forth. 
And finally, he decided to have a little fun. He said, hey, Johnny, what you up to over there? He said, my feet are cold, my cloth, my, my coat's in ruins, I got a cough that's probably going to put me in the ground before any of your bullets do. That's what I'm up to. What are you up to, Yank? He said, pretty much the same thing, my feet are soggy wet. He says, uh, Johnny Reb, you got any tobacco? Johnny Reb says, yeah, Yank, you got any food? And so they had these little boats that they used, little homemade rafts they used to, to cross the river whenever they had to send messages back and forth. And so the pastor on this side put a whole bunch of, of uh, what he called hog jerky. And he put some other things on there. And he sent it over to the Confederates. And the Confederates took that food and they put tobacco on it and persimmons and, and parched corn and they sent it back over. And so next thing you know, they're all sitting on the side of the river and they're enjoying the food that they're sharing with one another. Next thing you know, they're singing hymns to one another because it's Christmas time. And when it's all said and done, the pastor said, you know, we were looking to conquer each other. But while we sat on the bank of the Rappahannock, we were conquered by the babe of Bethlehem. And he gave us a purpose that went beyond our regional strife and reminded us that we're God's children. As we close our service, we're here to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And before we do, I missed a little thing. If I was standing sentry, and I always do, over my heart, and I was presented with the proof of who Jesus was and what he meant to the world and what he was going to do. I would take that ID card freely. And I would let him into my heart. And I did that in 1969 when I was 11 years old. I don't know if anybody here doesn't know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. I suspect that everybody does. But I beg you, I plead with you, as this holiday season is among us, the witness of Jesus Christ is there for anyone to see it. You don't have to do a whole lot. It's there. All you have to do is be ready. And one of the goals that I've wanted for this church is that any time somebody gave you an opening to share Jesus, I hope I gave the bullets for your gun, that you might freely share Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Now, as we close our service, let us celebrate the Lord's Supper. The passage I'm about to read is found in 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, verses 23 through 26. And it goes like this. For Jesus took bread, he gave thanks and broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he also took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
Now as we take time, please examine your hearts. See if you're willing and worthy to receive the Lord's Supper. Let us take a moment. Brother Juan, would you bless our bread today? Father, we thank you for this bread we're about to take. We, Father, thank you for the love that you show for each and every one of us. And Father, we thank you that all of us can partake in this uh, occasion to appreciate the love that you've shown us through Christ our Lord. Jesus' name. And on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and broke it, saying, This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me.
please bless the Jews for himself. We thank you, God, that we can be here this morning and partake of the symbol of your life and what you've done for us. That you have died for our sins. Thank you for continuing to live Jesus took the cup on the night he was betrayed and blessed it and said, This is my blood which is shed for you, this do in remembrance of me. And it is said that Jesus and his apostles sang a hymn before they went out into the night where he was betrayed. Unfortunately, we don't know the name of that hymn. But we do know a hymn that its theological depth is such that theologians have a hard time describing it. But it's a song so simple that we teach it to our children. Every one of you knows it already. <laughs> 